Her performance as a long-suffering wife in A View from the Bridge follows right on the heels of her portrayal of a single mother from another part of Brooklyn in Brighton Beach Memoirs. And over the past 20 years, today's guest has painted indelible portraits in such diverse plays as Stop Kiss, After the Fall, Julius Caesar, and The Last Night of Ballyhoo. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to talk with an actress with whom I share some theatrical roots in Hartford, Connecticut. Welcome, Jessica Hecht. Hi. Now you have to explain. Well, I'm going to save it for okay. when we get into the interview. <laughs> I can't um, wait. But um, all I can say is... While I never forget any actor in any show that I ever had a chance to work with, I am used to the fact that they don't always instantly recall me. So we'll come to it. But first, let's talk about View from the Bridge. Um, It's a show in which at the center of it is a triangle. You are one of the points of the triangle. Um, How did you approach this character who – is in so many ways frustrated, but in other ways, as as Greg Mosier said when he spoke on the program just a couple of weeks ago, possibly the one person in the triangle who is truly most aware of what's really going on. Yeah, that was the dilemma of how to proceed. And I, I have to say, I so appreciate that you got that, that you see that in the production, and that you... Um, that we, the audience is guided each night to understand who's aware and who's not and who needs to get to the next place. And it was never something I could consciously work on in rehearsal. My whole rehearsal process for this play was, was in a way um, propelled by my belief that I should love Eddie. I should just love Eddie and try to make our make our marriage the only thing i see worth saving the whole play and that was probably a a too general a too general a, a, a path to try to take and i was thwarted from that many times because of the complexity of the play because obviously it's not about my love for Eddie at all, but as a character, I was so desperate not to give up on him from the beginning mm-hmm. to really see that he could still be this man that I loved that I I kept thinking every rehearsal, well, if I just find my way back to Eddie every time, at the end of the day, I'll, we'll have the play that I think Arthur Miller wrote. It's about people not giving up on each other. It's about people who have horrible impulses but those impulses are uncontrollable and they're victims of that obviously so every um everybody who says we're at this triangle and that i'm completely aware i think that's because as we were working i just had to acknowledge what was going on between the two of them and move on I just had to do that, and that made me exhausted and really frustrated many, many days and sort of embarrassed that I was in this relationship because the play totally works on you. You can't you can't deny that at the end of a day of working on this play, you feel kind of disgusted with yourself when I was working because I would think, oh, I can't make this marriage seem viable. I have to find this thing. You know? But it's interesting. You're talking – 
you're talking in the voice of your character. As I'm talking now? Well, not, or in the, in the, the psychological that, voice. In, in the yeah. psychological voice, in the sense that you were frustrated because the script and the other characters wouldn't let you make the relationship yes. <laughs> what you, Beatrice, not you, Jessica, right. you know, necessarily wanted it to be. Yeah. Do you find you get really caught up in where the line between Jessica and the character? Um, yeah, I think my husband would probably say <laughs> on a bad day I do. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that I do, but in this play, I, I did. In this play, I definitely feel the power of the play was awesome, and we couldn't avoid feeling the feelings that the character has. And so I sort of uncomfortably admit, yes, I don't think it always happens. There have been plays that that's happened to me before, but you know, I think that's very astute of you to say that when you work on a play this great, you have your agenda as your character, and the play forces you to alter that agenda because of the course of the play is the course of the play. And whether I want to be in love with this person, the whole play or not, the course of the play makes it impossible for that to happen. And so I feel that there have been several plays now that I think about it and you mentioned it. I'd say Julius Caesar. I'd say any great play has that effect. And the other plays, you're probably wrestling with yourself to try to figure out a part of yourself that you can put in the play, you know, plays that are obviously less uh, refined. Well, it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk and say, you know, you were dedicated to the idea. You came in saying, Eddie is your North Star. Yeah. He's, he, it's always about coming back to him, which was a choice that you made as an actress and then found your way into it because yeah. of where the play took you, which is very interesting rather than coming in and saying, well, I've studied this and I see that she's frustrated and their relationship is this and all of that. So, yeah. so you, you forced yourself to explore it in an interesting way. Yeah, I think uh, I didn't have time to do that research. And and I think I was very disappointed in myself that, I well, I don't have that kind of a mind. I think that I can, in a heartbeat, figure out a certain intellectual reason for why something should be true. I don't have that facility. I, I don't feel as uh, strongly as other people do. So I couldn't work that way. I have other facilities for that. <laughs> so it was something that, that came out of necessity, I'd say. You referenced the fact that you were not able to do research. And of course, you're referring to the fact that you came to this fairly quickly, sadly, on the heels of another production, which did not run. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. But normally, would you have spent a lot of time before you got into rehearsal really going over the script? And was this a fundamentally different process for you as a result? Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. In this circumstance, I just read it several times. I just kept reading it and started to read one of his biographies. Um, I started reading Time Bends and then I moved on over to some of, you know, in terms of Arthur, I'd read quite a bit when I was doing After the Fall. So I had pieces of knowledge about how the script came to be. But if I had my process, I would have read it many times. I would try to read the whole play every day, but I also would have made extensive notations on the script and tried to hear the rhythm of the play. That was my problem. I didn't have enough time to feel, I mean, ultimately I found the rhythm, I think, and it obviously each night you think, I didn't find anything. But I found a rhythm that works. If I'd had the process I usually have, I start to score it because I think that I can start to hear the way it works as a play. But because I didn't have that time, 
we had to do it in rehearsal. I had to try to listen to it and, of course, listen to Liev and Scarlett and hear how my voice comes in. So I do find that I do research, but I also really try to get that rhythm. It's very specific hmm. to each play. And obviously something I'm making up because the playwright has his own ear. Well, you mentioned the research you'd done when you did After the Fall. Arthur Miller was still with us when you did After the Fall, and he was around. He was with bit. us, yeah. He was in the room. He, so yeah. obviously you weren't – if you were talking to him about a show, you were talking about After the Fall at the time. But what did Arthur Miller have to say to you, be it about After the Fall or about his work? I mean just the chance to know that major figure in American drama is pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, it's genius because uh, – I, of course, would have endowed him with these qualities because he was such a meat and potatoes kind of guy when we met him. He was so magnetic as a person, but the way he described things to us was so meat and potatoes that that is sort of what I took. You know, you would be stuck in a scene or trying to figure something out about that play too, which was so complex, the structure. And he would say something like, yeah, that's true. You know, he would listen to you and he'd say, so it's really there at the dinner table and they don't know what to say. They are having problems in their marriage. And she made this dinner and he's not eating it. And she's really wanting to try to get to the core of the man she knew. So she's trying, you know, start to really remember the way it was when you first started. You know, he would just describe the reality of being married in the Hmm. most kind of simple way. And you think, I made it into this whole thing. It's really just about people who've been married a long time and they they grew up together, so they know how to talk to each other. And she doesn't understand why he's not communicating. So that would be actually quite true of the After the Fall and in a way true of this. I think I did also, and I know I did for about two or three days when I was really getting into view, um, I thought, oh, God, am I missing the fact that this character is a reflection of Mary, the same, you know, his first wife was Mary, who was the mother of his children, his first children, and that's representative of the character I played in After the Fall, and I thought, oh, my God, maybe this is the same character, and I didn't realize it. That would be awful if I was playing the same character again, and I didn't realize <laughs> But, you know, everybody, uh, you know, decides who the characters are in relationship to who the writer is, and it's right. all just made up. I mean... <laughs> although, <laughs> although last night I was moderating a panel of writers, and, and David Ives said, for writers, every character is the writer. It's some aspect oh. of them. Oh, so interesting. Which is another way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And it's always, you know, it's always ridiculous because, well, Arthur was a great lover of actors and he was so generous to us, but you spend so much time thinking about what they wanted. Hmm. And this play for us really, for all the actors, at one point or another, we've said, oh, God, if he could have only been mm-hmm. here for a minute. He has a genius interview on BBC. Uh, you can get it on YouTube, an interview in which he speaks about this play. And uh, I can't tell you how rewarding it is to hear him speak and how much you appreciate interviews in retrospect because you can hear his love for these characters as he talks. It's unbelievable. So like, it's a gift. That, not that anyone would want to hear my <laughs> reflections in 20 years, but, but I, I think that Arthur Miller... I don't <laughs> think that's the case. But, but, but uh, that Arthur Miller, you know, the, when, you, when you realize the significance of that. Yeah. Whenever people talk about this play, there is a tendency to refer to the tragedy and draw parallels to classic Greek tragedy and that... The character of Eddie is the hero with one flaw which brings him down. Do you look at the play that way? 
No, I don't see that he has a flaw. And I guess that harks back to what I was saying at the beginning. I think that he's more of a victim of this really rotten feeling that he's grappling with. I think that he's a victim of it. I don't think that he is a flaw per se. And I think that he's a very simple, good man, a very powerful, simple, good man who who doesn't have the facility for exercising these feelings from himself. Maybe that's his flaw, a lack of ability to see himself. But it's but his his obsession with Catherine I never see as the flaw. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go back to how you first got into theater. You grew up uh, in a suburb of Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. When did you uh, start thinking about being an actor? Uh, well, you know, I was in um, high school, my first year of high school, and I was sort of lost the way I now see everybody is lost at that stage in their life. And my parents sent me to this wonderful program at Wesleyan University, which has this un- kind of unfortunate name called the Center for Creative Youth. But uh, but. I really loved the program, and I, lo- I started to just love the arts. And then I, you know, had a, what I believe was this great awakening. And I came back, and my parents then allowed me to go to Hartford Stage to a wonderful program they had there, and that was the start. I still didn't know that I wanted to do that. Through high school, I started to look at acting as like like so many kids do as something I might want to do. But when I went to college, I thought maybe I'd want to study a language or dance. And so I went to this wonderful college, Connecticut College, and uh, I had a tremendous Shakespeare teacher that inspired me, and I realized I wanted to do that. Well, yeah. it, would that Shakespeare he, teacher be Morris Karnofsky? Yeah, yeah. He was just unbelievable influence, yeah. Now, for those who don't know the name, certainly – Younger people, Morris Karnofsky was part of the group theater and, in fact, was in the original cast of Awaken Sing. To give people an idea of how he goes back to the 30s, you were uh, – you would have been at school, I'm guessing, in the early 80s. 83, I went to Connecticut College. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And he was also the original Alfieri. In the film of A View from the Bridge, the Sidney Lumet film, he was huh. Alfieri. I didn't remember that. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, and that was at the time when Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Connecticut was vital and he was – Well, he was a mainstay there. By the oh, 80s, yeah. it was fading. But certainly in the 60s and 70s, 70s. He, was, he was a regular there. Yeah, he had this really exquisite leer that he, that he had done and – you know, he was no, to anybody studying Shakespeare or theater, he was a name that would come up frequently. So – when you're taking this class, you haven't said – you'd become interested in the arts because of the time at Wesleyan, but you weren't specifically going to Kong College for theater. Was the course a performance course or was it a literature course? Oh, it, it was both actually. We'd study the play in conjunction with somebody from the English department and then we'd pick characters through Morris's help and we would really start to study how those characters work. And he – had written this book, uh, really an incredible book on acting Shakespeare and on acting in plays of this quality, really. And he had this great expression called rimbombare, which means essentially to reverberate, that verb in Italian, which now that I speak a little Italian, I should really remember if if that verb was correct. But it basically was talking, which was sort of a Meisner concept, that you have to you have to bounce off the person you're acting with, hmm. um, psychologically, emotionally. You have to bounce off them. And so he 
use this concept for us to understand how the language of Shakespeare gives you energy as you speak it. You're bouncing the ideas out. And it was so illuminating to me in terms of understanding the text. It was unbelievable. And then after about a year with him, he came to see... I did Night of the Iguana there with a director. It was a great time to be in drama school because all of these people from the group theater were still teaching. And people, we had this great director who had been from the open theater, who's like Joe Chaikin's best friend, Peter, hmm. I can't remember his last name, but then I for years tried to find these people, you know. But anyway, he did this very interesting production of Night of the Iguana. And Morris came and he said, You look like you want more, you look like you want to leave this place because it was like isolated. And he said, you should go to New York and study with Stella, which my parents would never let me do. It was to, you know, just to go to New York and study. But I found that NYU had this program. And within a year after that first year, I was gone. And I moved to NYU and studied with Stella. Well, I studied at her program. She wound up passing away a year later. Mm. But I studied with all of her disciples who were remarkable teachers. And that was the segue. So I wound up getting those group theater people just at this this last gasp of when they were really working, yeah. Hmm. So where in this period did you find yourself playing a lady-in-waiting <gasps> to Pam. Pamela Payton Wright oh in God. Hamlet at Hartford Stage starring Richard Thomas? Oh, my God. Were you still God. in school or did you just – No, it was – it was uh, my last year. It was, I think, it must have been 1988. Could that be right? The show was 87. This it's is this 87. is where I know you from. I was oh. the press director for Art oh, Stage. Oh my gosh! And that was Mark's genius reign. And I had grown up um, seeing all those shows. I had just one little group of credits left, and I wound up doing them there. And that huh. was my last. And why? You know, that was this externship basically it was a great uh, that was a great experience i felt so proud of being part of that and pamela was pamela payton wright was i had grown up seeing her so many times and she was she my, was one of the mark lamas's regulars yes she was my role model and she became a friend she was one of those people that took you under her wing you know she was so respectful of everybody and so interested in everybody and I still remember things she said about certain characters she played. I would ask her a gazillion questions. You know, so that that's so crazy. That's <laughs> so crazy because I remember sitting in that room and watching and Ophelia was Monique Fowler and Richard I've seen. many. I met Richard Poe was an amazing Claudius. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But again, you know, it's interesting that – you weren't quite finished with school. Certainly, you hadn't. You, I don't yeah. believe you had any lines, no. but you were there to be able to watch a production from the inside, which is, yeah. you know, a fully professional production before you're even out of school. Yeah. So once you got out of school, was it straight back to New York and start pounding the pavement? Uh, no, you know, I did that actually. Yeah, I did a lot of downtown theater. That was. Still, when La Mama was this great place to work at, and at NYU, we'd had the virtue of having Robert Wilson come at that time and tra- this guy, Travis Preston, and we had a lot of connections to stuff downtown. And so I started working at La Mama and George Ferens, do you remember? He did all the Shepherd plays, and I worked with him, and I started working with the Ukrainian theater downtown, and I did all of these very cool plays below 14th Street. And then after about a year and a half, I decided to apply to graduate school, and I got into that program at San Diego, at La Jolla, 
And about two days before I left, I auditioned for Julie Taymor's Theater for New Audience, was doing a Midsummer Night's Dream, Julie Taymor's production, and they were doing it for Lincoln Center, Lincoln Center Institute, which went to all of these schools and then performed it at Lincoln Center. And you got your equity card. All of this was fantastic production that Julie, before she was like the Julie Taymor, had directed. And you played your character of the lover, and then you'd play one of the mechanicals in a mask, a magnificent, Mm -hmm. incredible mask. So I got on the plane and I went to San Diego and it was, you know, out of an advertisement for California. It was so beautiful. And Jefferson Mays picked me up at the airport. He was a senior and I was going to be a freshman. (laughs) He was in a white suit, I remember, with beautiful white box, as you can imagine. (laughs) As he continues to to wear. (laughs) And I got a call that um, I had gotten the part of Helena in Midsummer, and I came home. And that was my first equity show. I realized I didn't want to be in graduate school. And that was it for grad school? You <laughs> just said, day. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> that was the, yeah, I had that day to experience La Jolla. And, um, and it was beautiful, but it wasn't for me at that point. So I came back and I did that show. And then that was sort of the start. And then I did the national tour of the Heidi Chronicles. And um, it took me out to Los Angeles. And that was sort of the start of everything. Yeah. Well, jumping over, because we don't spend a lot of time on TV and film work in this conversation, let's jump to um, your Broadway debut. Um, How did um, Last Night of Ballyhoo come about? Well, only by way of telling you how I got that audition and or speaking about TV for just a second. I'd been on a big series and it was very difficult and uh, they downsized my part and that same week, uh, my husband had a terrible week in Los Angeles and our cars were both stolen and we were standing on the street and we said, we're going back to New York. It was Because it's so much safer there. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because you'll get hit by a car. You won't get your car stolen. But just because we were just homesick. You know, we were just mm-hmm. homesick. So we got on the plane. We came home. And in about, I don't know, two weeks, I got this audition through my agent for this play. And... I was, God, I'll never, I'll never, never, I mean, it's Broadway, and blah, blah. but I, that character just spoke to me. And after about four auditions, and I just remember thinking that I've never had this feeling of this sort of internal workings of the character making sense of Lala Levy, that she just feels so gawky. Like I kept thinking, wow, Alfred really understood the nature of being 23 and just terribly like uncomfortable in your body. And um, and then I I shockingly got the part, and it was such a joyful experience. Every time I went back, I felt that even though there were all these people in the room, and I felt terrified, it, the part just made sense to me. And that was a shock, you know, that I was going from having all my aspirations were connected to being in Los Angeles and wanting a series. And so this thing, this idea of doing Broadway, which was always from years ago what making it meant, was suddenly there and it was shocking, utterly shocking. You know, you can switch your aspirations and you just (laughs) – And certainly coming into – I mean this was, as I recall, Alfred's first play that got major attention since he'd written Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it had been it had been a number of years. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, 
I don't know how many years since then, five or six maybe, between Daisy and Ballyhoo. But it was Dana, who I just saw the other day. Dana Ivy. Yeah. And I felt so proud that I knew her. And it was Dana played by Mother and... And, you know, it was challenging because Alfred had worked on it out of town and then the characters were so specific to this this Atlanta phenomenon of these Jews that really had kind of denounced their Jewish identity. Well, as one of the characters said, they really want to be Episcopalians. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it was fascinating for me because I'm Jewish and I don't think besides Paul there was – you know, we all came at it again from different angles, but besides Paul, I don't think there was anybody else that was Jewish, and it was fascinating for me to merge these two worlds because the Southerners were what was so influential. Dana's ear for the way these people communicated. I got that job, I think, because I had the sense of the insecurities and the lack of identity that that character was grappling with, and yet the code of that community was something I had no idea about. And so it was total trial by fire to learn that from Dana. And, for you know, there's a Southern code that you got to get. Yeah. And yet I'd read you'd grown up a very observant Jew. Yeah. And so it was – you're playing a Jewish character yeah. who's not very Jewish. No, it was weird. I've had that several times actually. It's funny. In Brighton Beach also, yeah, I am really believe in – well, in religion in general, I just – think it helps people, but I was relatively observant as a kid, unlike my family. So I always, if there's a character that's somewhat religious, I find that interesting just psychologically to mind that. But I, I had to kind of <laughs> let that go for this one. It was, it was wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, you mentioned Brighton Beach. There's, there's another parallel, which is here you were playing the relations who had to live with the other relations because they didn't have the resources. And this, you were yeah. the daughter in Brighton Beach. You're, you're the mother who's had to move in yeah. because yeah. she can't afford yeah. to be on her own. Yeah. You know, it's that's a very interesting dynamic to play in a house because you wind up being very uh, uncomfortable with your own – with your – any feeling that will take up too much space. So it's this interesting dynamic of figuring out how to be as full as the character is and still be in a home where you're trying to just sit on your one cushion and not, you know, disrupt anything. I didn't think of that parallel. That's wonderful. You reminded Hmm. me of that. The following year, you did an extremely different play, namely Diana's son's Stop Kiss, which, again, got a lot of attention. Um... And one of the things for the people who don't know Stop Kiss, it's the story of two women who develop a relationship. They've not thought of themselves as gay but come to develop a relationship and ultimately are punished for it um, at the very moment they come together uh, in an awful way. Yet the play is structured that literally scene by scene, it's the aftermath of the tragic event that unfolds when they admit their relationship with the scenes of the relationship building. So you go from light to dark, light to dark, scene by scene. What was what was that like to work through? Well, we worked on that for a good year before workshopping it. We went to Minneapolis to the Playwrights Lab there. And it was thrilling because I think Joe Bonney is a, just a tremendous mind in terms of new plays and she would really pinpoint what you had to keep focused on so that it became like a dance like you know basically 
that play is structured so tightly that you memorize the switches back and forth so that your body does them and then you have to be very free in it. And that's really what we worked on for that year, I think. You know, she was had done all these solo pieces where that kind of stuff happens. And I think that's the way it influenced the rhythm of this piece and the way this piece went. We would just memorize physically and emotionally the launching pad of each scene and you would just get it. It was really mm-hmm. interesting. But Diana also has a tremendous ear for dialogue. Tremendous. And what we would do is talk over the dialogue, the dialogue of those characters for hours and hours so that there was, she writes in an unnaturally realistic way. You just think, wow, but people do talk like that. You know, she would have the phrase I just came out with, you know, written with the ellipses and all of that. And you'd say it enough times and you'd think, this is just the way people talk. This is amazing. So it was that combination. But we rehearsed it. I think in general, I find that rehearsing the play as though it is a dance or something of that nature with the emotional changes coming in is extremely helpful because not that, you know, the problem with that, I guess, is that you would say, well, what if the other act, you know, what if things change that night and you don't want to hit that high at that point? But you do know, once you're relaxed, what the rhythm of the play is. And you just, even if you're not feeling like crying or laughing, your body actually takes over in some places and it gets you to the next step. Even when it's not linear. Well, especially when it's not linear. When, huh. Especially when it's not linear. I think that's how all that great sort of Eastern European stuff really works when it's not linear and you've memorized it so that it appears to make sense. It appears to make terrific theatrical sense. Yeah, yeah. I have to ask, going back to your television work, you first gained national recognition for your role on Friends in which you played a gay character. And after you returned to New York and after Last Night at Ballyhoo, you did a show with the public, namely Stop Kiss, which is very high profile, in which, again, you were asked to play a gay role. Did you have any concerns about being stereotyped? Uh, Well, I didn't realize that that would happen organically. Oddly enough, I guess it's not so odd. After playing those two characters, there were a few offers for things that were so on the nose. Other gay women look sort of bohemian, kind of trying to find, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it was just like they had seen me do that and they thought, oh, that's perfect. I have a gay character that doesn't really look gay in my play or my, and I thought, oh, no, I can't. But, um, so so it's it's quite easy to get typecast. Mm. It's shockingly easy to get typecast. Um, or to play like these kind of dry – I got for a while a lot of characters that were very dry in their humor because the character Callie in Stop Kiss was a bit dry and the character in, in Friends was kind of dry in her delivery. And so I, I made a pretty conscious effort not to go down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it is, yeah. it is startling how quickly people just want to yeah. put you in a slot. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Now, a play people are probably less familiar with. It didn't have a long run here in New York at Playwrights Horizons. Lobster Alice. Oh, yeah. Which was based in a bit of fact about Salvador Dali being hired to create uh, a sequel to Fantasia, to put it simply, and his work in Hollywood. And it it was a piece that ultimately did not 
suddenly draw tons of attention for Salvador Dali and tons of attention for the Autism for the studio and, guy and, or, and. or you know it was you as as I believe the secretary assigned yeah. to yeah. all of this yeah. who who yeah. got so much attention yeah, it was funny. It was a wonderful play by Kara Obolinsky, um, a Minneapolis playwright, actually. And I think the reason that worked in that way, for one thing, the center of that play is really about people becoming infatuated with people they work with and the fantasy that takes over in the mind and the power of being in that creative environment. And I th- I think Maria Myleaf, who's just wonderfully figured that out for me because I just had a, a baby three months ago and I'm like a crazy person. I thought, oh, I'm ready to go back, but I had sort of lost my marbles. But she she helped to guide that production to a place where it was really about what happens when you're in this room with these people and they're really creative. I mean, think about Dali and, you know, and the animator working at Disney trying to create Fantasia and how you feel you're part of their world because you're with them all day and you're you're not. They don't see you that way. And it was really about this person's struggle with that and also the fantasy that one goes through, which I think is just fascinating because we all have these fantasies that somebody is really thinking about us and we couldn't be more wrong. You know? mm. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I think that I think that effect, I don't know, from my perception from what I heard about that, that's what people were struck with. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So let's come back now to After the Fall, which we talked a little bit about. Um that was that your first encounter with a, doing a Miller play? Yes, it definitely was. Yeah, we had done the reading actually with Liev. We did a reading for Arthur with Liev and with Hilary Swank in the offices at uh, the Roundabout. And Arthur was there, and and I remember watching him sit next to Liev, and it was so. We had all never seen him. I don't think anybody there had seen him. Of course, Todd Hames and, and Michael Mayer had, because Michael had just done a view from the bridge with him. You know, so they had this connection. And he was so sweet with – Michael was so sweet with Arthur and Arthur was so sweet with Michael and they were all very comfortable and and they understood him. You know, but for us it was terrifying. And so that was this reading which went quite well. And they, I think they asked Liev to do it and he is already, you know, on his way to being movie star. And Hillary, I, I don't remember what happened with her. So a few months later they decided to do it and they asked me to join. And, uh, yeah, I had, of course, only studied Miller's stuff in school. But um, but he was he was around quite a lot, and I will always tell people that he said at that point that it was the worst period in history he had ever lived through. Isn't that so sad when you think about it? And from that perception, he was seemingly trying to illuminate the struggles that people went through in a time that was actually simpler. Hmm. You know, he would say like, "This was a simpler time. We weren't clouded by." psychoanalysis by a world that was I mean the world was pretty bad we just finished the second world war during not just but he said you know these people are trying to survive in us actually a simpler time than this so it's more direct they're hmm. not you know yeah but it's also a play where he would often argue that it was not autobiographical per se can you and, believe that yeah that's and not. well that's what I was going to ask <laughs> you so when you've got the man there yeah. and yeah. as you've already said you know you were playing his first his wife first you, yeah. You, yeah. you didn't talk about the character <laughs> you then, talked about Arthur's first yeah. wife yeah. Um, Louise was <laughs> any of that revealed to you no nothing no no hmm. no in fact I remember I think that Carla even 
I think there was a crazy story. I might be making it up. That she, we had these books of Marilyn and of that period and all of that on the table. They did this wonderful dramaturgical work on that play. And I think I remember him saying, why is that there? Like, <laughs> and, or some, something just, just not mean or not, just, why is that? Why are you looking at all that? <laughs> because it's, you understand from his perception. It's the, it's just these people, you know. Don't make it about her. Make it about this woman he fell in love with. Hmm. You know. So yeah. But I mean, boy, just to look across the room and see Arthur Miller looking at pictures of Marilyn Monroe right? is a powerful yeah. image to even think about, let alone yeah. experience. Yeah, I think to the people that really knew him, you know, he would tell these stories. From what I've heard, he would tell stories about it. No. But I find that fascinating, right? I, I think with Neil, it was very different because you would hear from him working on something clearly, honestly autobiographical. You would endow a lot of the characters because he would tell stories about certain ones and say, oh, this character is just so specific to this experience and this character for me is on the page. I wrote exactly who my mother was. And then you'd say, and yeah, and what about this moment with the ant. Now tell me what happened then. Oh, the ant? Oh, the ant's all made up. No, that one isn't. That I mean, that was my ant, but no, we didn't live there. And that. So you go down the journey, you hear him talking about this one character, and you're like, oh, great. I can't wait till it gets to me. <laughs> when he gets to me, then I'm going to get the whole meat, you know, I'm going to get the whole story. And then you'd say, okay. And you say, no, I don't, that's, I don't know who that is. <laughs> oh. It's interesting, you know. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, we talked earlier about Morris Karnofsky in this great Shakespeare class. You'd done an Othello at one point for theater for a new audience, but came to Broadway in A Julius Caesar yeah. with, uh, with Denzel Washington. Yeah, yeah. Um, had you done a lot of Shakespeare in the interim? No, I just did Midsummer, my first play, right. Othello, and then and the Caesar. Now, when I lived in uh, Los Angeles, I helped to form something called the Classical Theater Lab, which was this amazing theater company at the old Los Angeles Theater Center, which in the early 90s, they had this idea that there was going to be this real resurgence of theater in LA, or this <laughs> genesis of theater in LA. And there was this great theater lab, this big center where Reza Abdo had his company, Marcus Stern was directing all of this stuff, Morgan Jeunesse was running this whole program, and you could get a gymnasium going, like the old-fashioned idea of gymnasium, where you would just do work on these plays. And so we created from several actors who had had classical training, this company, and it has, hmm. has gone on for years with really interesting people. So, so over the years, I really tried to keep my my hand, and we would do these small productions of of you know that's what happens in LA you do these small productions of huge plays. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but suddenly you were in a, a huge production of a huge. Play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. what was what was the experience? I mean, the role of Portia is not huge, but has some very pivotal scenes in terms of a play that at points is just all about the troop movements. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly. Yeah the center of the humanity of the play is is found in her. Yeah, I guess it is, you know, and I found that thrilling. I have never, I have to say, well, this play is thrilling and terrifying. That play wasn't as terrifying because the part was more 
consolidated, obviously. And the energy of the audience – well, first rehearsal was was wonderful because Dan Sullivan runs these rehearsals beautifully. It's just about the play and he's so precise that you felt really in this bubble. We would do it and then it – you know, and you would feel so clear. He forces a clarity. So that was great. We did it and I thought, wow, it can be simple and you can really hear this language and Denzel was – you know, somebody of that stature has a certain energy, so you just are so focused, you know. But then the audience came in, and they love him. I mean, it's this unbelievable energy. Now, Leif has tremendous energy and all of that, absolutely. But the audience for that Caesar, they worshipped him. Hmm. And so he would come out, and I had the – and now I think of it as like this privilege because I will never experience that probably again. I had the entrance with him. And the audience would cheer when he came out. But it was like so much positive energy that I, I honestly don't think I ever had what I would consider an truly off show because it actually makes you feel like almost well. I think if you were feeling unsure, unwell, it's like healing that energy. You can appreciate what I'm saying. Somebody who is adored, obviously they get exhausted and it doesn't feel that way to them after a while. But for me – who lives on 55th Street and Tenth Avenue, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, it was empowering. It was kind of nuts. And I felt so strong because I was just basking in his glow, essentially. And my character, since I really rehearsed it in this very simple and clear way, could follow through in that way because it was very supported. This is really an incredibly interesting experience, incredibly interesting. It's so often talked about that celebrities come to Broadway and people go see the show because they're going to see the celebrity, not necessarily the show. So I'm wondering, you know, given, as you say, this this swell of applause that would greet your – and Denzel's <laughs> entrance um, – every performance, did you have a sense that the audience were not all – people who knew what the next line was going to be or could recite along with, with to be, uh, not to be or not to be, but Friends, Romans, Country. Yeah. And no, like. They didn't know the play at all for the most part. Yeah. So, most of them so was it in a way a chance to feel what it's like to do Shakespeare for people who aren't laden with all of oh. the ones that came before? Oh, that's such a great question. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know what it also made me think? was that the clarity of the character in Shakespeare comes from being really honest with the language. And if you really rely on that, because in that production and the way Dan works, you have to start from that place. If you really rely on that, they get the story. Mm-hmm. And you are – I mean, actually, Leah talks a lot about that in a funny way when, with Shakespeare, how much easier it is because you're propelled to the next emotion by virtue of what you're saying. Well, Mark Lamus, who – Again, I yeah. worked with and you watched his stuff growing up. He used to say, there's no subtext in Shakespeare. Yeah. You play exactly what the character is saying because yeah. there isn't anything beyond that in what he wrote. You yeah. have to go – and that the punctuation is marked out for you and you have to breathe where he says to breathe and break yeah. the lines where yeah. he says to break the lines. Yeah. So it does carry you and, and give you a clearer map than let's say Arthur Miller where – you're mining some of the psychology, even though he says it's yeah. meat and you, as you say, it's meat, meat and potatoes. potatoes. Yeah. They're just sitting there doing this. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. You're mining the psychology because, you know, the circumstances are are wrought and you can't avoid it once you get in there. But the thing with Shakespeare, I guess, what we're saying is that you needn't think of any thing. You don't have time. You don't have the energy or time, the mental. If you have that much mental space to think of subtext, I think it's you're going down a, uh, the wrong path. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about Howard Katz, which you did for Roundabout in their off-Broadway space. If I remember the show clearly, Fred Molina was in every scene. Yeah. And everyone, everyone had individual scenes with him. Yeah, it wasn't like you were in a you were in a play with lots of other people, but you didn't perform with lots of other people. Yeah. It was all revolving around his individual interactions. Yeah. So in a way, you'd you'd have a scene. I mean, I don't remember. Did you have one scene, two scenes with him in the course of the play? We had – well, that play was different when we first got it. It had gone through a lot of rewrites. Patrick cut some scenes out and what had happened originally with that play was that Fred dealing with – with his nervous breakdown, essentially, to say that for lack of a better. And you would become, I was the wife in like three scenes, and then I was his therapist, and then I was his boss. But several of those scenes were cut out. Well, the therapist scene was cut out. And so I don't know if the audience understood that basically this one key person in his life was manifested in all of these other people and then he comes down back to reality. But I had like the whole joy of that is to be very honest, working with Fred. I don't think anybody would ever pass up a chance or should pass mm-hmm. up a chance. But um, yeah, you know, it's it's hard for me to remember how that play, how we developed that play. And I love working with Doug Hughes in it, but I, I don't remember... You know, I only remember my scenes, and that was so episodic. I only well, remember it. the experience you, of it. him. You were in isolated. So you isolated, were working in yeah. isolation with yeah. a single actor, yeah. and while he had the entire journey, yeah. you only had your, your moments, moments, and not it's yeah. not the same as playing a, a character over over the course of an evening. Yeah, yeah, and there were kind of iconic British characters that Patrick talked to us about. You know, this is the the lady agent that I had, and you're sort of like, wow, you had this, but but it was like, you know, this is the wife, and he'd mentioned what square they lived on, which I probably was the equivalent of Madison in 77th, you know, and and you'd uh, try to figure out what that was. So it was um, it was a different experience, you know. The the I had my dressing room with Elizabeth Franz, of who's wonderful. Just, could you not just yeah? She's just the best, and uh, so. She and I talked a lot about that. And I remember at one point we said we're characters in search of our play. And then every time we would get on stage, we'd get off and say, oh, I love the play though. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> so in our minds, the play was working, but we didn't feel part. We'd come down and we'd change into the next outfit. And we'd, we were characters in search of our play. And probably the play worked beautifully for the audience, but backstage. Well, because for the audience, the audience a, got to put it all together. All together, but they we couldn't. The entirety. Yeah, it was very difficult. For the actors, it was like watching one part of the Norman Conquest. You yeah. wonder what's going on in the yeah. other room when you're not there. Exactly. Exactly. Now, we've mentioned a number of times Brighton Beach, and it's certainly a great loss to lovers of the theater that we didn't get to see Broadway Bound because – 
the promise that was shown from the first you know now I say the first half yeah. to see the other part. How far into working on Broadway Bound was the company at the point at which you learned it was not going to continue and it would in fact not open? Uh, we had just done the first run, like the run through that you do before you start teching essentially. Oh, but you were you pretty much completed your oh, you know, the yeah. main rehearsal period. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. The refinements were going to happen, you know, in this tech process and probably had like two more rehearsals and then we we're going to start tacking it really this slow process of doing a couple you know how you do a couple rehearsals right. and you really kind of try to refine things so we were we were there yeah yeah i feel so bad for josh and for alan they had done beautiful sure work. because you had we had realized been, there were people who weren't in brighton beach who never got to who, who never even got to yeah. play the parts yeah yeah and so you actually did get to run the show, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how did it, it feel? I mean, how? I mean, how did you feel it was, it was the, going? It was the first time I felt really. It was funny. I felt really good about it that time. You said you said it was the first time you, you felt, felt good. Are, are yeah. you usually so self-critical that you always that you, you that, don't feel so good? I am. Uh, yeah, I don't usually feel good the first run through uh, at all. But you know what it was was that the character in Broadway Bound, the character of Blanche, comes back a changed person in Broadway Bound. She's married, you know, Brighton Beach. She's really, really desperate to make a change. And in that play, at the end, there's just a glimmer of hope, but she is who she is and they're poor as can be. In the next play, she comes back and she's so... She's empowered both by the way she dresses. I mean, she's in a magnificent mink coat and dress and and also that she sees these people for who they are. And I kept thinking, though, I have this one shot to come home and really have an experience with my family that I'd always wanted to have. And so in that play, Blanche just has this one long scene where she comes and she asks her father to... And it, it felt too familiar. It felt like, oh, this is the scene I was waiting to have, but it all seems too pat to me. I wanted it to have more edges and I wanted it to be less certain and I didn't think it would be what I wanted to perform, the way we were working on it. But that's something about David Cromer is that you do it enough, you get rid of that feeling. And that was the first run through where I felt, oh, I'm kind of surprised. It's, oh, it's, it's not going to go well and I'm going to have a big like it just got out of control and that was what I wanted to experience. I, I sort of felt too knowledgeable about where it was going when I was rehearsing it. And that one time, it felt kind of scary. And that was it. Mm. Then we never got – yeah. You know, yeah. you've mentioned scary a few times in this conversation. Is acting scary? For uh, – you know, it's scary. It is definitely scary for a lot of reasons. One major reason is that you honestly don't know how you're being perceived at times. You honestly don't know – not how you as an actor, whether you're good or bad. But there are moments when you feel like you're flying and the audience gets that and receives that. And then there are moments where you feel terrible, genuinely. Ah, oh, this was the worst the scene ever went. And somebody who has seen the play many times – the director or somebody in the audience will come and say, 
that scene was so affecting. And you think, I have no idea how that could have been. I was so bad in that scene. Hmm. And, and maybe there was something in the sense of being lost that projects an emotional state that people relate to. I had that experience recently in in A View from the Bridge where somebody came who had seen the first preview and, of course, it was Rocky and saw a show in which I thought, oh, Jesus, that first scene, I I can hear myself and I'm I'm desperately trying to connect to Scarlett and Leah and I'm just like listening to it. This is terrible. And so the whole scene, I was just like, Really trying to like, well, am I not relaxed? I didn't even know he was there. What's wrong with me? And he came back and he was like, I started crying that first scene, that first scene. And I thought, that first scene was terrible. Huh. <laughs> but, and I thought maybe, but many actors, most actors you would talk to would say, yes, I've had that experience before. And you wonder, is it a quality? Certainly experience that at film, on film with something coming across your face that you're not aware of and the director saying, that was it. That was perfect. And you're like, oh, well, <laughs> I guess I don't know. At least then you don't have to worry about doing it again. Yes. Once they've got it, but you're exactly. on to the next. But sometimes, you know, what happens is you feeling great is a sign for the audience of something that's too slick, too facile. And I think a really good audience wants to see the real person. The re- you know, they don't want to see slickness. They want to see a Miller character. Miller character isn't necessarily slick. Right. That person is just there. Maybe that person is like thinking in their head for some reason appears rich. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah, but it is scary. It is scary. <laughs> just yeah, yeah. Well, with Brighton Beach memoirs and Broadway Bound, sadly. The show came to an end abruptly and you didn't know you were going to have a next opportunity. In the case of View from the Bridge, which has been such a success, I think it's one of the rare times I can remember obviously a press release being issued affirming that a limited run show would in fact close as scheduled. Um, Do you know what's next? No. I go to Williamstown every summer, which I love and I'll go this summer. And uh, do you already know what you'll do? Um, yeah, I can just say is we're actually doing our town with uh, I know Campbell Scott will will play the stage manager. I hope well by the time this <laughs> and Dylan and the Bakers Dylan and Becky who I do shows with every summer and will play the you know the parents. What's the and, yeah, let me ask quickly? What's the lure of Williamstown? Because you have done it a lot, and there's so many yeah. actors who just love to go. Yeah, and you don't get. Quite as long a rehearsal period, and in most cases, you only get to run the show for a couple of weeks. Two weeks, yeah. So what's what's the appeal? It's that you're with these people, these actors that you adore, that you respect enormously, and there's there is pressure, absolutely. There's more pressure because you have such a short period, but there's something so liberating about being in this beautiful environment. And for me, I've almost exclusively worked on classic plays up there, and just. Being able to be with your, for me, with my family, and and it harks back to what the group theater used to do. It feels, although some act, this will be my seventh or eighth season, but it it feels like we're all part of something mutual that we all just want to do a good play that people like, mm. you know. And it's really simple, and there are these n- lovely people in the town that make you feel so welcome. And you know, part of it is like this sort of. Oh, I'm with the club of people that I love. And part of it, I'm sure, is a narcissistic feeling like that. But it is just this beautiful, lovely pleasure. 
Yeah, hmm. yeah. So. Well, with that, we'll say thank you for joining us and congratulations on all of your successes. Oh, thank Jessica you. Jessica Hecht, thanks for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thanks so much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow The Wing on Twitter at... The Wing. And follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of The Wing's fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.